As you can see in your program, I've changed the title of my presentation slightly. I stole this title, The Making of a Medical Missionary, from The Making of a Surgeon by Dr. Nolan. And in this book, he describes the process he went through from an intern that knew nothing to becoming a competent surgeon able to practice on his own. I really wish I had subtitled it what I wish I had known when I was a medical student and resident. Because I have to admit, I learned a lot preparing for this, and I wish I had known some of these things when I was going through. Briefly, this talk is divided into three sections. First, we'll lay down some principles. I'd like to give, then give you some practical applications of these principles. And then, since our theme for this weekend is testimony, I'm actually going to give my testimony as an example. So let's start with some principles. The Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. This can be a very scary word if you're a residency program director because it is this council that determines whether your program can graduate residents. It determines whether you can get government funding for this residency program. They have a lot of power. I don't know if you've heard about the 80-hour work week, but it was this um, Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, ACGME, that enforces this 80-hour work week. Very powerful institution. But they have a very difficult job. They must ensure that a physician graduating from an American residency program is competent enough to practice on their own. And this is actually difficult because you've got a wide variety of specialties and you have a wide variety of skill levels of people graduating from medical school. Well, the ACGME has actually done a very good job of doing this. And in six areas, they have decided that if you are not competent in these six areas, you are not competent to practice as an independent physician. And these are patient care, medical knowledge, practice-based learning and improvement, interpersonal and communication skills, professionalism, and systems-based practice. Now, I'm not going to go into those six areas. The question for today is, how does the ACGME make sure a resident is developing proficiency in each of the six core competencies? And then, how does the ACGME finally determine one is competent enough to practice independently. And I submit to you the way the ACGME does this is through independent evaluation. They have put a lot of thought and study into these independent evaluations. Evaluations and feedback. Believe it or not, there's a whole genre of medical literature just on how to do evaluations and how to give feedback. Self-evaluations are also can be classed under independent evaluations, and they've done studies on what questions you need to ask yourself to reveal areas of medical deficiency that you need to improve. And finally, they use tests. Although I like the term crises a little better. Tests is a bit uh, exclusive, and crisis is more inclusive, and I've defined crisis as a psychological condition characterized by unusual instability caused by excessive stress and either endangering or felt to endanger the continuity of an individual or group. 
That was all of medical school for me. This can be in the form of artificial, such as mock codes, mock boards, pimping, etc. Or it can be real, the real deal, boards, real codes, complications you experience in a surgery or with a patient. And I would submit to you that medical knowledge deficits are always most clearly revealed in a time of crises. When I was an intern, I started on the neonatal intensive care unit. I knew nothing about neonates, but I thought I knew a lot. I had a baby that came in with, that was born with ambiguous genitalia, and my attending on service suggested we call an endocrine consult. My senior resident kindly asked if I thought I needed to go over how to call a consult with her. And I assured her I could call a consult on my own. I'd seen plenty done as a medical student, and I thought I knew my patient pretty well. So I called Dr. Stein, who is our endocrinologist on call. And about two minutes into my presentation, he said, stop! You don't know the patient. I don't have a clue about the patient based on what I'm hearing from you. Go to your senior, figure out how to actually present to a consultant, and then call me back. So I went off to my senior with my tail between my legs, and I went over with her what I should have done, and I learned how to call a consultant. Had he not been willing to stop me, I probably would have blundered along that whole month having no idea my medical knowledge deficit. So I was very thankful for that, and I found that my best attendings were those who worked to create an artificial crisis. Those were my best attendings. So this is a talk about medical missionary trainees, not the ACGME. Going through medical school, and I have to admit a lot of residency, I thought that because I was a physician, or a physician in training, and because I was a Christian, and especially because I was a Seventh-day Adventist Christian and a conservative Seventh-day Adventist Christian at that, I was a default medical missionary. Unfortunately, I was wrong. Just as you are not a physician when you enroll in medical school, I was not a medical missionary just because I was enrolled as a medical missionary with the, excuse me, just because I was enrolled in medical school and was a Seventh-day Adventist. We must go through a training process to become competent medical missionaries. Notice this, Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 471. Every physician who has anything to do in God's service must aim at perfection. Nothing short of this standard is pleasing to him who has called us to be co-laborers with him. And especially should those who are in training to act as his medical missionaries turn resolutely from every temptation to be satisfied with a superficial knowledge of their profession. Let them rather reach upward to perfection. Theirs is a most exact calling, and their preparation must be painstaking and thorough. Couple key words. Aim. That means you're not there yet. Turn resolutely. You might not be facing the right direction. Reach implies a process. And then preparation. All of these 
indicate that there is a process we must go through to become competent medical missionaries. So, how does God develop our proficiency as medical missionaries? And how does he reveal areas of growth to us? And I would submit to you, it's a process very similar to the ACGME, independent evaluation. Evaluation and feedback from successful medical missionaries. Self-evaluation. And then, times of crises. I'm going to talk a little more about evaluation and feedback and self-evaluations in my application section. But here, right now, I'd like to discuss times of crisis a little more. Because I would submit to you that our spiritual deficits, which hinder us from being successful medical missionaries, are most clearly revealed in times of crises. And I'd also submit to you that God, just as an excellent attending, often creates times of crises for us. So I'd like to talk about God's artificial crises. They often come right at the peak of perceived success. A couple examples from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Elijah had just won all of Israel from Baal worship to worshiping God. The entire nation had fallen on their knees and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then God brought a crisis. Jezebel came and threatened to kill Elijah, and he fled. God was revealing a spiritual deficit to him in a time of crisis. Another example, the disciples on the lake. Jesus had just fed 5,000 people. There was a coup to take over um, the, to take over, to force Jesus to be king. And the disciples were part of this. It looked like Jesus was going to be crowned king. Jesus disbands the coup, sends his disciples to a lake, and, excuse me, to a boat, and orders them to cross the lake. They were disgruntled. God had brought a crisis at the peak of their perceived success. But these crises reveal hidden defects that we would not have discerned had we not gone through the crises. Notice four um, fourth volume of the Testimonies, page 55. Many who have never been placed in positions of trial appear to be excellent Christians. Their lives seem faultless. But God sees that they have traits of character that must be revealed to them before they can perceive and correct them. And the providence of God, they are placed in different positions to call into exercise qualities of mind calculated to develop character under a variety of circumstances. Sometimes God's artificial crises are sent to interrupt trouble we are creating for ourselves. That was the issue with the disciples on the lake. They were fairly disgruntled when Jesus sent them to the boat. Ellen White says, their thoughts were stormy and unreasonable. I love that, stormy and unreasonable. So the Lord gave them something else to afflict their souls and occupy their minds. God often does this when men create burdens and troubles for themselves. Finally, God's artificial crisis teaches righteousness by faith our own complete helplessness, excuse me, our own helplessness 
and complete dependence on Jesus. And this is key, folks, to be a successful medical missionary. We have to realize our helplessness and our complete need and dependence on Jesus. I'd like to finish the um, quote from Desire of Ages, page 380, about the disciples. In storm and darkness, the sea had taught them their own helplessness, and they longed for the presence of their master. Friends, as medical missionaries, we have to realize our own helplessness, and we have to long for the presence of the master. And if you don't realize that, and if you're not longing for Jesus' presence, God just might have a trial in store for you. So, in summary of this section, God, like the ACGME, is working to develop competent, excellent physicians. Developing competent medical missionaries requires feedback from others, self-evaluation, and crises. We should welcome the crises God brings to our lives and seek to discover the hidden defects God wants to reveal to us. I'd now like to turn to an application, and I hope that this section is extremely practical. I found these, I'm going to be sharing experiences that were helpful for me, and also tips that I gleaned from other people. There's two things that are required for you to be a successful resident or a successful medical student. You have to have personal study. This is very important, especially in medical school. I had a few friends that didn't think it was so important, and some of them ended up retaking a year of medical school. When I was a resident, I worked really hard to do board review questions. I read through an entire textbook. I attended lectures. I generated clinical questions and looked through journal articles to answer them. And then, of course, just reading journal articles in general. All of these are really important skills. But you also have to have personal practice. Because you can study all day long how to put an IV in, but until you put the IV in, you probably really don't know what you're doing. And it took me 10 unsuccessful attempts before I got my first IV. And I had studied an awful lot before I even tried. And it's the same thing with a successful medical missionary trainee. We have to have preparation, which is study, and then we must also have practice. Both are extremely important if you want to be a successful medical missionary trainee. So I'm going to discuss um, each of these areas in depth, under study and under practice. So let's first discuss study and preparation. What goes into preparing to be a successful medical missionary? The first thing that you must do is study what God says about being a medical missionary. And a great source for that is what Ellen White has written. And she's written an awful lot about this. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just an alphabetical list that I pulled up that I had available on my CD-ROM and on my iPhone E.G. White app that I've downloaded. There's a couple, here's uh, some list of books. A Message to Our Physicians, Counsels to Physicians and Medical Students, Extracts from Recent Letters from Sister White Relative to Medical Missionary Work, 
health, philanthropic, and medical missionary work, letters to physicians and ministers, medical ministry, ministry of healing, test, special testimonies relating to medical missionary work. How many of you have read any of these books, at least one of these books? Okay, how many of you have read two of these books? Okay, a few less hands. How many of you read three of these? I think we have some reading to do. This is the bare minimum. And I have to admit, it hadn't occurred to me when I was a medical student that maybe I should read these because I was under the delusion that I was a default medical missionary. And that's just simply not true. We have to study. The second thing for preparation is make devotions and prayer a priority. We cannot give what we do not have. Just simply won't happen. But how do you do this as a medical student and as a resident? Your lives are incredibly busy, and especially if you're at a secular institution, they aren't going to just give you time to go have devotions. And I can tell you that from personal experience. So one thing that really helped me going through residency and medical school was I made a five minute a day rule. I believe vows are very important and I didn't want to vow to spend an hour a day in God's word because I knew that sim that simply wasn't realistic at all times and I might miss a day and I would break my vow because I couldn't catch up, you know, two hours. If I miss two days, that's two hours the next day and, you know, pr pretty soon you're accumulating more hours than there are days, excuse me, more hours than there are in a day. So I made a five-minute-a-day vow, and to my knowledge, I've never broken it, and it's been extremely helpful for me. Five minutes every day in God's Word. And there's many ways that you can do this. I had a reading plan. I, was, um, I would read through the Bible, and I would read through the Conflict the Age series, and I read through the testimonies when I was going through medical school. And I just always had a book with a marker, and when I had a moment, I would take the book or you know, keep up with my reading plan, and even if it was only for five minutes, it was enough to keep that connection with heaven. Many times it was much longer than five minutes, but it was enough to keep that connection. My husband would generate Bible studies during his devotion time, and he found that very helpful. And then he would share those with patients or share them in Bible study time. You've got a great resource for having devotions with iPod and iPhone. Audioverse.org, my husband will download sermons onto his iPhone from Audioverse and then he'll listen to them going to and from work. And that's how he has devotions many times. Uh, my father gave me a gift on my iPod. He downloaded or he bought a dramatized Bible, the uh, King James, New King James, NIV, and one other one I'm blanking, four different dramatized Bibles, downloaded them on my iPod. And when I was a medical student, when I was biking up to and from Loma Linda University Hospital, I would listen on my iPod to my devotions. And I got through the entire Bible on my bike, just going to and from. It was, it was great. Then Remnant Publications has a great reading of the Spirit of Prophecy. I also got through the whole Conflict of Ages series just listening on my iPod in my spare minutes. Just five, ten minutes here, there. And it was, again, a great way to get through. And then, um, I don't know how many of you have an iPhone or some other smartphone and have downloaded the Spirit of Prophecy app, the E.G. White app. It's fantastic. It allows you to underline 
and take notes and bookmark. It's, it's great for um, just catching you know, a few minutes here, a few minutes there, keeping that spiritual life alive. Finally, and most importantly, keep prayer. It's not even a priority. It's a necessity. And it's also the thing the devil's going to attack the most. So, again, you don't have to go down and uh, find a place where you can kneel down and you know, put down your prayer rug. You can pray when you're walking to, to between patients. You can pray on your way to work. You can pray on your way home for the patients you've seen. If you have trouble remembering, which I sometimes did, I would set alarms on my phone to remind me to keep a continual attitude of prayer. It's so important to keep that connection with heaven. And the devil is going to prioritize his attacks on these two areas of your life. He is going to work to ensure that you, can't, that you lose your devotional life and you lose your prayer life. And it's so important to defeat him. Keeping the Sabbath holy is the third area of preparation I'd like to discuss. Keeping the Sabbath holy is a barometer of your spiritual health. And it's a really easy place for doctors and nurses to slip in because of necessary patient care. And I can tell you from personal experience, it's very easy to slip in. I work 10 weekends a year as an attending. And I have to constantly guard on this point. Notice Medical Ministry, page 50. There will always be duties which have to be performed on the Sabbath for the relief of suffering humanity. This is right and in accordance with the law of him who says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. But there is danger of falling into carelessness on this point and of doing that which is not positively, essentially, excuse me, positively essential to do on the Sabbath. So here's some practical ways that I've found helped me to keep the Sabbath holy. If there's downtime, which frankly was, didn't always happen on weekends, but if there is, there's resources you can utilize to have church. Audioverse.org is a great resource I've used many, many times. You can also, if you have downtime in the morning, which I did have a couple times, um, there are different churches that have online worship service you can join. Uh, I was in Sacramento, and Sac Central has an online worship service you can join. 3ABN, Hope, and many times if you're in a larger center, the local Adventist church will have broadcasted sermons. And then carry your Sabbath school lesson with you. Have it available so that you can study it. Another thing that I found very helpful is spending time talking to patients and addressing felt needs with the goal to find their spiritual needs. Just this two weekends ago, I was on call on Sabbath, and I spent extra time, in fact, almost an hour, in a mother's room, just listening to her talk about her drug addictions and how she wanted to get off of that and how she wanted to be a good mother. And we were able to bring it to a spiritual, and we talked about how she's really wanting to go back to church and hasn't found a church. And it was just a big blessing, and it opened a whole spiritual conversation just because it was Sabbath, and I took the extra time. Avoid studying. Obviously, sometimes you do need to look up articles pertinent to patient care, but make sure it's pertinent to patient care and not just studying. And then, of course, avoid appearing lazy. 
Others need a Sabbath rest as well. We want this to be a testimony, and we don't want to look like we're shirking necessary duty. And then just I want to say one word about conferences. Plan ahead. Many times, if you're presenting a poster, just make sure it's not scheduled on Sabbath. I know that can potentially be a problem, but if you plan ahead, it shouldn't be. And then Medical Ministry, page 216, talks about a Sabbath fund for monies that are earned on Sabbath. Physicians need to cultivate a spirit of self-denial and self-sacrifice. It may be necessary to devote even the hours of the Holy Sabbath to the relief of suffering humanity. But the fee for such labor should be put into the treasury of the Lord to be used for the worthy poor who need medical skill but cannot afford to pay for it. My husband and I did this as residents. We figured out how much we made each day. And anytime we worked on Sabbath, we set aside that money um, for this purpose. And it was a big blessing. We actually were able to sponsor somebody to go through the New Start program at Weimar. And we could never have done that had we not been setting aside that money. So we, we found it was a blessing. And then if you're not working, you better be at church. Um, this is a really easy area to slip in. I know from personal experience how tired you can be as a resident. And Sabbath morning rolls around, and you really want that Sabbath rest. But let me tell you, it's an even bigger blessing if you get out of bed and go to church. Get involved in your church. Hebrews 10, verse 24 through 25. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. Don't skip out on church. So important. And be there early. Get to Sabbath school. Lead out. My husband and I were both um, superintendents of Sabbath school, and that meant we had to be there before anybody else. And it was great motivation to get us to church on time. Another part of preparation that's extremely important, seek support from fellow Christians. It's interesting to me that Jesus did not send out his medical missionary disciples one by one. He sent them out two by two. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, through 9 and 12 tell us why. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. Now, my husband and I both went to a secular residency program. And I know some of you may end up at a secular residency program, and you may be all the only Adventist in that program. My husband and I weren't the only Adventists. We had each other. But you, you may not be married, or your spouse may not be in medicine. So I would recommend finding a prayer or an accountability partner, even if they're not in the same location. Or you can join a Wednesday night prayer meeting at your local church. Attend Amen conferences, GYC, ASI, other conferences to help recharge your spiritual batteries, to, get in, to meet other people who have the same goals that you do and can help you along in your journey as you're becoming a medical missionary. And then finally, and one of the most important, is find medical missionary mentors. And I see one of my medical missionary mentors actually just walked in the room, uh, Dr. Kevin Bryant. Um, I had a mentor when I was in residency 
well, in my residency program assigned each of the intern pediatric residents to a faculty mentor. And the job of this faculty mentor was to meet with the residents three times a year, discuss how we were doing. We looked over our evaluations. We looked over um, feedback we'd gotten. We set goals for ourselves. And I found this extremely helpful as a resident in figuring out areas I needed to improve. And I still actually keep in contact with my mentor. And this is also important as we're developing as medical missionaries to find someone who is a successful medical missionary and is willing to mentor you. Here's some ideas. Um, Amen members. Many, many successful medical missionaries here at Amen. Find one in your area of expertise, or excuse me, area of interest, and see if they'll mentor you. Um, look for established physicians with active Bible studies. Here are some of the physicians that actually I have um, tried to, my husband and I have tried to model after. Kevin Bryant, Phil Mills, John Chung, Neil Nedley, um, both George and Todd Guthrie. All of those were mentors to us in one way or another, and we've really appreciated their help. And then pastors who have experience working with physicians. I was really blessed to be in the same city as Don McIntosh, and my husband called him many times for advice, and we really appreciated his mentorship as well. So, summary of study preparation section. Study Ellen White materials. Make devotions and prayer a priority. Keep the Sabbath holy. Seek support from fellow Christians. And then find medical missionary mentors. But as I said, study is not enough. We have to practice. And I want to assure you that you do not need to start practicing after medical school and residency. You need to start practicing during medical school and during residency. And I want to hopefully give you some real practical tips of how you can do that while you're a medical student and resident. So first of all, one idea would be to lead out in a small group Bible study. If possible, find at least one to two other people to co-lead with you. Call can make planning weekly meetings very difficult if it's just one person. I would recommend making the content coworker and patient friendly. You don't really want to invite a new person to your study and have them walk in when you're studying the mark of the beast. This might not be a good first Bible study. You know, God can work through that, but might not be a might be a rough start. We went. My husband and I had a uh, small group Bible study all through medical school, and then also during residency. And we went through the parables, sanctuary, and then books of the Bible. And many times we were able to branch out from that and do personal Bible studies with the people coming to the small group Bible studies. And then consider serving a vegetarian meal. We did a potluck-style meal when we were in residency because we were too busy to do all the cooking. But people really liked that. Lead out in health evangelism. Cooking schools are a great way to get your feet wet with health evangelism. You can do the health talk. I will say they're very time-intensive, and they require a lot of staff. I've done several cooking schools. I did, I helped with one as a medical student, and then I actually planned one as a, just after finishing residency. 
but they're a great resource you can invite patients to. And patients love cooking schools. I'll just tell you, they really, they really get a kick out of them. You could also help with the prepackaged program. My husband and I both let out in a CHIP program, and we also let out in a Lifestyle Matters program while we were medical students and then residents. And those are a little easier. They're kind of out of a box, but they still require a team. Or you can partner with your local community. And this is a great way to start learning how to get the health message out there if you don't have a already established base. For example, I worked with a school nurse in the public school system who was not an Adventist, probably not even a Christian. But she liked the fact that I was a vegetarian and a vegan, and I liked to give health talks. So she arranged for me to come to the public schools and give health talks to the parents of, of excuse me, the immigrant parents of children. And she arranged for a translator and everything. So I was able to go to the public school system and give health talks. And then what you can do is invite the people you're talking to, you can invite them to a program at your church if you want to bridge that gap. You can also work with the public health department. Um, they're thrilled many times to have a physician come to them and offer to do things for the community. Find a Bible study interest. If you can't do a group Bible study, find at least one person to study the Bible with or connect at least one person with someone who can study the Bible with them. When I was a resident, one of my very first patients um, was a little boy who um, was coming for well child check. And I offered to pray with his father and mother. And that led to further discussion. And eventually, we were able to start a Bible study with them. And they're still ongoing. They're still studying, actually, even after I left. They're studying with um, some friends of mine. But that was a huge blessing for me because I made a lot of blunders and a lot of mistakes, but they were a very forgiving couple. And I know I grew spiritually working to lead someone else to Christ. And then offer to pray with patients. And I'm so disappointed that the conference or the um, breakout session on prayer is during my session. I thought it was going to be afterwards, and I was going to refer all of you to that, but you'll have to listen to it on Audioverse. Some ideas, though, come up with non-threatening screening questions. You can check nurses' notes to figure out religious preferences. They almost always ask. If they haven't asked, you can always ask your patient if they have a preferred religion and if they would like a clergy notified of their hospitalization. And that can be, even if they respond in the negative, that can still be a springboard for a spiritual discussion. And then rotate with a successful medical missionary or institution. And I just have some ideas. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but um, I actually added to it after talking with some people here from the booths. You could find an AMEN member in your desired or current specialty doing successful medical missionary work and see if you can arrange an away elective. Um, it's actually not as hard to arrange an away elective as you think it is. When I was at UC Davis as a resident, I was able to go to Ella Ife Hospital in Nigeria and work with um, the Adventist program there without any problem. And that was a secular, 
I was working, starting from a secular university. There's uh, Weimar has a New Start program, um, and they also have a special three-week program in the summer designed specifically for medical students and or residents to come and observe and get some practice. If you're interested in that, you just need to contact Dr. Jackson. They also have a health evangelism and leadership training program called Health, but that is a semester-long program and may not be possible if you're a medical student or resident, but something to consider. Um, Uchi Pines is working to arrange a lifestyle medicine rotation. Dr. Sandoval is working on that and has told me I could use his name as a reference. So if you're interested in seeing what Uchi Pine does, see Dr. Sandoval. And then Wildwood also has a medical rotation you can go through. Vaughn Sparrow is the contact person for that. And then um, the Pennsylvania Conference. I'm really excited about what the Pennsylvania Conference is doing. And if you're interested in finding more information about what they're doing with medical evangelism in the city, uh, go to missionforthemini.com. Missionforthemini.com. And then finally, you can always, if you're interested in overseas mission service as a medical missionary, go on a mission trip. Amen plans mission trips. Loma Linda has a lot of mission trips. You can make your own. I actually went to um, Albania twice. I arranged my own mission trip. The first time I literally went on my own. The second time I partnered with ADRA. And that is a picture of me extracting my one and only tooth. And it will be the one and only tooth. I really appreciate dentists, and we'll leave it at that. I would just say a caution regarding trips planned by non-Christians. Just make sure it's truly medical missionary work. Many times it's medical work, but not medical missionary work. And then, you know, other issues like Sabbath being respected, vegetarian food. Again, just things to think about and go in with your eyes open if you're going to choose to go on such a trip. So, in summary... Here's some ideas for how you can practice being a medical missionary. Lead out in small group Bible studies. Lead out in health evangelism. Find a Bible study interest. Offer to pray with your patients. Rotate with a successful medical missionary or institution. And go, or go on a mission trip. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but hopefully some practical ways you can work on being a medical missionary. I'd now like to give my testimony of how God is working to develop both my husband and I into medical missionaries. And it's an ongoing process, but I hope it will be encouraging to you as you see how God has worked in our lives. So the story starts, we're fourth-year medical students, and life is rosy. We had just been elected to AOA, and we were very excited about that. I was planning on going into dermatology. I was actively working on research with a confocal microscope, excuse me, confocal microscope, and we were working to see if we could diagnose basal cell carcinoma using a confocal microscopy system. And my husband was planning on urology. He was interviewing all over the country. And we thought we were the epitome of medical evangelists. We were extremely involved in Advent Hope. 
We were both actively giving Bible studies on a weekly basis to non-Adventist classmates. And I forgot to put up there, we were actually also very active in health evangelism. We were planning the first CHIP program for Loma Linda. We actually designed a whole entire lifestyle elective, a month-long elective. But as often happens with a mirage in the desert, as you reach it, it just disappears. And that's what happened to us. First, Eric didn't match into urology. And he had no backup plan. He had not applied to general surgery. He had not applied for any research years. He hadn't even applied for a transitional year. We just hadn't even occurred to us that he wouldn't match. And then, because of the way I had done interviews and everything, uh, I didn't, before the match, I knew I wouldn't match into dermatology. We were devastated, absolutely devastated. And what made it hurt so badly was we felt God had let us down. You see, we thought that doing the right things would lead to success. We had failed. And we thought standing for God would, choose, would let us succeed in our chosen career. Probably one of the reasons Eric hadn't matched into urology is he'd taken a fairly controversial stand on keeping the Sabbath holy as a third-year medical student. And we just assumed that because he'd taken that stand, we would for sure succeed in his chosen career. We had not succeeded. The harsh reality began to sink in. We had no jobs lined up for next year. And being AOA and having an MD after your name is great. But without a medical license, which requires some sort of internship, it doesn't put food on your table. And I had visions of us camping out at Big Bear Lake with a sign, we'll work for food. And I was blubbering about this to one of my friends who pointed out to me that the children of Israel had a very similar experience. They had a very similar misconception. I'd like to share their story with you. We pick it up in Patriarchs and Prophets right after they'd been absent from Egypt for about a month. They've gone through the Red Sea, they've had all sorts of miracles, and now they're in the wilderness. When the children of Israel had been a month absent from Egypt, they made their first encampment in the wilderness. Their store of provisions had now begun to fail. There was scanty herbage in the wilderness, and their flocks were diminishing. How was food to be supplied for these vast multitudes? Doubts filled their hearts, and again they murmured. They had not as yet suffered from hunger. Their present wants were supplied, but they feared for the future. They could not understand how these vast multitudes were to subsist in their travels through the wilderness, and in imagination they saw their children famishing. Now, I, this had never hit me before until I went through this experience. Starvation is not a pleasant way to die. It really isn't. 
If you think about it, there's a million people out in a wilderness more desolate than stretches of road between California and Colorado. And they're looking around and there's no grass, there's no water, and they've got all these animals that are dying, so they're not going to be able to rely on the animals for food, and they realize that within a few short months, they're all going to be starving. And as a parent, your heart just aches when you suffer, but it really aches when you see your children suffering. And it suddenly occurred to me, my faith was a whole lot weaker than I thought, because I've never been that close to starving. Yours might be weaker than you thought, too. I was questioning God's leading, and I had full cupboards, and I had all of California's social safety net available to keep me from starving. Notice, though, the practical application that Ellen White makes. Many look back to the Israelites and marvel at their unbelief and murmuring, feeling that they themselves would not have been so ungrateful. But when their faith is tested, even by little trials, they manifest no more faith or patience than did ancient Israel. And that was me. I was murmuring at God. But you know, God is merciful. He supplied food for those children of Israel, and he supplied jobs for my husband and I. So we ended up at UC Davis completely providentially. I mean, I could go into stories. It's, it was truly providential. Eric started a urology research year, and I started pediatric residency. And it looked like life was going up, but we still hadn't learned the lessons God intended. So he had a few more crises for us. Eric didn't match into urology again. And then he didn't match again. Three times. Didn't match. And then I started getting terrible pediatric clerkship evaluations. I mean, terrible. One of them called me a ditzy blonde. Another one said that I didn't know how to get along with other people. Another one said that I uh, defied an attending. And I didn't think any of them were true, but they were terrible. And they're in my record. And we were experiencing failure. We were doing the best we could, but our best just wasn't good enough. And we were shattered. It was a really hard time. Both of us went through major depressive episodes where we'd cry ourselves. I mean, my husband, he's six foot two, and he'd cry. I would cry. We were trying so hard, and we were failing. God had some lessons to teach us, and we realized, we slowly began to realize that our failures were due to pride, major pride. We had been doing everything right. God deserved to bless us. We were better than the others. And it hurts when you see other people who you don't think are as religious as you are succeeding, and you're not. And the reason it hurts is because of pride. 
we also had very poor assumptions about God's plan for us. We hadn't read the material that I told you all to read. We had no idea what a medical missionary practice looked like. We thought we did, but we truly didn't. We had no clue. And we definitely had an attitude of superiority. And as a medical missionary, if you have an attitude of superiority, you are not going to be effective. You cannot win patients for Jesus. And God had to reveal that to us. And we are so thick and skulled, excuse me, so thick-headed, it took some pretty hard knocks. Do you know, God's merciful. So I started reading Ministry of Healing and rereading and rereading the chapter in contact with others. If you haven't read that chapter and you're having any evaluations that say you're not good at dealing with others, read that chapter. It's excellent. And I did my best to put that into practice. Eric and I both began asking for feedback. And we went to every, I had to go to every person that gave me such a terrible evaluation. And I had to humble myself and say, what am I doing wrong? That was tough. Let me tell you. I shed a few tears, and I don't like to cry. But you know, it worked. God helped us. I was shocked when they asked me to be pediatric chief resident. I was shocked. In fact, the very person who had given me one of my worst evaluations actually turned out to be my strongest loyalist advocate. We ended up working together as colleagues. And then um, Eric was given a general surgery spot, a complete miracle. And then he went on to match in colorectal surgery, and he's currently doing his fellowship in colorectal surgery. But the story's not finished. I think we probably have a few more trials in store. Right now, we're in the process of deciding where to go after Eric finishes his fellowship. This time, we're trying to read the council, but, you know, we, we don't have it all together yet. We still have to examine ourselves. We have to see whether we're in the faith. We have to test ourselves, as it says to do in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. So in conclusion, becoming a medical missionary is a rigorous process. Submit to God's artificial crises and allow him to reveal your hidden def deficiencies. Study. Put into practice what you learn. But most importantly, pray. And I want to finish with this paragraph about prayer. Never should we begin the day without committing our ways to our Heavenly Father. His angels are appointed to watch over us. When unconsciously we are in danger of exerting a wrong influence, the angels will be by our side, prompting us to a better course, choosing our words for us, and influencing our actions. Thus, our influence may be a silent, unconscious, but mighty power in drawing others to Christ and the heavenly world. Go and be medical missionaries. Thank you. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.